Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with D&D? You may be asking yourself, why am I hearing Sean and not Chris? Well, Chris really needed some time, some some Chris time. And he's a very busy man with lots of projects going on. So I thought I'd give him the week off and I would bring on a guest. And I could not think of a better guest to bring on than Mr. Teos Abadia. How you doing, Teos? Hey, Sean. I am doing well. Thank you for saying that. That's very kind. I am uh, really happy to be here with the measureless, masterful, mentoring Mad Wizard Merwin. Oh my goodness! You you've you've <laughs> gone all out, Chris. You're I gonna prepared. have to up your you're gonna have to up your game, Chris. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's it's always great to talk to you. We've been in communication quite a bit lately for a variety of reasons, um, yeah, some of which we'll we'll talk about briefly. But uh, so how you been? We you haven't been on the show for, geez, has it been a year, more than a year, a couple years? Yeah, it's probably been more than a year. Uh, but every time is awesome. Um, how have I been? I've been. It's I've had the busiest work year in a decade, and the busiest writing year in a decade, and those, those two forces yeah. pull one apart. So it's it's you know 2018 was it was a tough but good year. Could you remind everybody what you do when you're not doing your gaming writing? Uh, I'm an environmental consultant. It's kind of a mix of computers and environmental. So I work with uh, huge chemical companies that are all generally pretty dirty and polluting. And I try to help them track all of the uh, environmental uh, impacts that they have so that Hmm. they can hopefully improve them. So when you're not writing D&D, you're saving the world. I try. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So, well, you know, coming from me then, continue your, your other work as well, please. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I will try. Well, we are going to keep our general format of the show. So we'll do some announcements. And then as our main topic, we're going to talk about writing adventures and encounters in different environments. But uh, we'll, we'll kick off our announcements first. Our first announcement is yet another great article from DM David. Um, This time he wrote about three reasons the ecology of monsters can make creatures worse. And I believe this is actually a reprint of one that he's done earlier, but I think it's coming at a good time. And uh, I rarely disagree with with DM David, and I'm not going to really disagree with him on this one, but I'm going to add some clarifications, I think. Uh, Did you get a chance to read it, Teos? I did. Uh, and I, what never, did you I think? never miss my DM David. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. So generally what he's saying in this article is there were a bunch of ecology of articles in Dragon Magazine throughout the years. I think he counted over 150, and I don't know if that includes when it went fully digital or not, but that's a lot of ecology uh, articles. And his his is his take is, Monsters can be magical creatures, so why weigh them down with the non-creative science that takes away some of their magic and some of their utility? And for the most part, I agree. 
if you are weighing down your creativity with anything, whether it's canon or whether it's science or whether it's any other restraint you put on yourself, it's probably not the best for your work or for the game. Uh, but I want to make sure that we're not conflating weighing something down with being inspired by something because science and ecology do not have to be antithetical to to creativity and story. That's a, that's a cliche that I've seen a lot from more creative types going through like creative writing classes and, and uh, you know, other creative avenues where science is kind of scoffed at as opposite of creativity where is science is not necessarily bad and imagination is not necessarily good in all cases. And while this article doesn't say that, there seems to be this lurking background aura that it, it kind of perpetuates. So, so I don't think that's what he's saying, but I want to clarify that right away. Because we can use science and ecology as a starting point and then move in creative directions inspired by that. Because science takes just as much creativity in many cases as any other creative um, endeavor, I would say. What do you think, Davis? Yeah, I agree with you. This was one where, from the beginning, I hesitated. And even as I read it, I kind of felt feeling that way. Like, I know what he's saying, but... <laughs> but um, mm. Some of those articles were pretty bad, right? When I look at the old... Uh, Dragon Magazine articles. Some of them were just sort of like somebody came up with a idea, an idea around a, a creature's ecology, and just and it was sort of forced. And, and I don't even know that the person writing it had any science background at all, so it, it felt very uh, haphazard, random, and not useful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when these ecologies are pretty bad. Uh, but Ecology is actually really fascinating, and if, if you look into a lot of the ecologies of creatures that are real-life creatures, they're amazing, and they inspire my writing in many ways. Um, and I think that the better monster books have taken into account the ecologies of creatures. We see that, like, uh, you know, fourth edition was very much like any monster can fit into anything. It was almost like a miniatures approach, right? It would even say in the first fourth edition monster manual... Uh, it would suggest pairings that were sort of like around the challenge level rather than whether mm -hmm. these creatures would really be together. Uh, and then later 4th edition books completely changed that and paved the way for 5th edition where we now even get to the point of Volos and Mordenkainens, which are full of these ecological takes on creatures, right? What would a beholder's lair be like and why? How do they think? What do they do? Uh, who do they cohabitate with? These kinds of questions I think are really fascinating. Uh, and and are are just complete fuel for the mind and for writing adventures and weaving mm -hmm. campaigns. Yeah, at, at one point there was almost a a lash or, or a blowback against some of those early dungeons where you know you would have trolls living next to orcs living next to other creatures, and there was no mention of where they got their food or or you know why they got right. along with each other. And yeah, you know, I can understand intellectually wondering about that, and but it is a game, and the you know the story is mostly about the players and their characters, and not about the monsters and and theirs, and for the most part. So yeah, you know, I can I can see where that there's been this back and forth pull on this sort of issue over the 
the course of the evolution of the game. And so, you know, that's why it's important to, uh, you know, to talk about this. And I'm glad DM David reprinted this article. Uh, if, I can, it, if I can add one thing there. Uh, you sure can. Back in the uh, Stone Age of the Internet, I co-wrote a book, uh, a net book, back when those things happened. <laughs> uh, it was called The Net Librem of Athasian Ecology. It was this Dark Sun book, and it was, you know, back then I was deep into ecology classes, taking several of them at school. And uh, so this whole book looked at the ecology of creatures in Dark Sun and the different types of terrain that exist. And that's a, another aspect of ecology is that it can help you. You know, a lot of times you think about the dungeon, but when you look at the wilderness, a lot of times as DMs, we sort of we, we yearn for ideas of how to make something interesting. And looking through the lens of ecology can actually really help you, right? When you do, An easier one to think of is maybe like uh, spiders or spider-like creatures where we can think about how would they trap their prey? How would they, mm-hmm. how would the, what would the uh, adventurers stumble upon when they meet these creatures? But we can get into a lot more interesting things. And some of the better encounters I've ran in Chult, for example, are ones where uh, a monster was interacting with another different type of monster when the PCs come across it. Mm-hmm. And when you when you create this, it becomes a vibrant, real jungle, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's much more interesting. Right. And then those nature checks come in handy when you yeah. can learn about why they're doing this and how can we take advantage of this interaction. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've only written one ecology article, and it was the ecology of the rust monster during fourth mm-hmm. edition. And... So I didn't even know where to start. So I just looked at the monster and thought, what real-world creature looks like this? And armadillo was the first thing that came to mind. So I just started researching an armadillo, and I learned an incredible amount of cool stuff about armadillos. You know, their their physiology, their environment, their habits. And and I didn't then say rust monsters are exactly like armadillos and they must be, but it was just a good launching point. And and I also thought, okay, they eat iron, right? That's what rust monsters do. They eat iron. There's iron in blood. So how would they interact with with bl- tasting blood? Do they taste the iron in blood? And so, and I didn't, again, you didn't then have to delve into a four-page treatise on iron in your blood, but then you could just create new monsters or var- variations of monsters based on that. So it it can be a leaping board for creativity, you know, rather than pulling you down. I I wrote the ecology of the veg pygmy. For yeah. Oh yeah. Yes, you did. So that that is my uh, claim to fame for ecology articles, uh, Dungeon Two Hundred One. And there, similarly, I had to look at you know these guys literally come from outer space, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, they come from this russet mold that is has leaked out of tanks in in this area of uh, the barrier peaks inside this spaceship. That you can explore in the Barrier Peaks adventure. And so I had to look at, you know, what can I do with this? And so working on how these spores would uh, change them and how the different veg pygmies could uh, could have a stronger theme to russet mold was something that I really tried to do in that. Yeah. So, DM David, thank you again for, uh, for a, a great, well-thought-out article and uh, spawning a lot of good discussion around it. Uh, the second thing, on EN World, on their front page, they had a brief article about NAS Craig preparing for their 40th year at Gen Con. So 
to give a little background, NASCRAG is a tournament that runs at Gen Con every year. Um, it started, obviously, 40 years ago when the D&D Open was super popular at Gen Con and people were waiting in line for hours to play only to be cut off because the slot sold out. So people that were left in line decided to create their own thing, and they did. And so I have never played in NASCRAG, although I've heard a lot of people talk about it, um, to mostly positive reviews. You know, it's it's supposedly fun. It's a competition like the Open. Um, but what what's really striking about it, if you read the article in EN World, is that they saw a problem, and rather than just complaining about it and, you know, saying... TSR at the time is terrible and, and Gen Con is terrible because they don't give us what we want. They went out and did their own thing. And it's just great to see people do that, especially when it brings together a full community of, of people. And uh, so over the years, it's changed. It went from a D&D uh, rules to a Pathfinder rules uh, tournament. And... I think there they went. There used to be a three-round tournament where your team would advance, just like the D and D Open. Your whole team would advance, and if you didn't advance, you just didn't go on to rounds two or three. Uh, but now I think they're going to do it two rounds instead because it's a little easier to manage uh, and not so chaotic in terms of people buying tickets, but then not being able to use them because they didn't advance. Uh, so, congratulations, Nascraig, on forty years of uh, of showing people fun at Gen Con. And that's, since, that's since, impressive. Yeah, since you and I both worked on the newest version of the D and D Open, um, have you ever have you ever uh, done the NASCRAG tournament? So I've never done the NASCRAG tournament. In fact, I didn't do uh, the old tournaments, though I would often go and, and see them played uh, or talk to people who'd play them. Um, I know that Tom Lommel, the dungeon master, who's now renowned, renamed as Six Hit Points. Yes. Um, uh, he has helped with that event at times. I'm not sure if he still plays an active role, but but uh, he he and I have talked about that the competition uh, and what he likes about it. I think it has a nice uh, bringing in of of the old like traps, tricks, surprises, unexpected twists that previous events would use, and 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 that's a nice aspect. And their their adventures like the Fez series are very famous. I know DM David has written often about those early adventures that came from these tournaments. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of history there. It's neat to see. And yeah, like you said, people, there've been so many ups and downs to tournaments and they've been just continually doing this, which is impressive. Yeah. So any listeners out there, if you have any insight into NASCRAG, whether in the past or at present, uh, go on to our G plus community and, let us know what you think and what your experience has been with NASCRAG. Maybe uh, people going to Gen Con this year will want to jump jump aboard and try it out uh, for the first time. The next bit of news is Winter Fantasy. Winter Fantasy will be coming on February 6th through 10th, 2019 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, Bald Man Games is putting it on yet again. Lots of... Great stuff to play, especially if you're interested in D&D Adventures League, although not every event there is uh, for D&D Adventures League. I know that they are going to have the new epic Stardock Under Siege there. Um, I know because I wrote it. And we're going to talk. Well, I, I wrote it with M.T. Black, or I should say M.T. Black wrote it, and I uh, I gave a little help. 
they're going to be playing uh, DDAL Adventure 810 through 815 will be there. Lots of great Moonshine, new and old Moonshine Isles content for those of you who are into the Moonshine Isles Bald Man game series. They're also going to have the return of Pathfinder to Winter Fantasy with uh, Stephen Radley McFarland of Paizo will be there running not just that, but his own Delve RPG game. There will be other D&D and, and 5e games. Uh, let's see, I think Shadow of the Demon Lord is going to be there. I hope Esper Genesis will be there again. Yeah, the, the uh, events for Esper Genesis were added. Okay, cool. Awesome. And and the, the board game library that is at Gen Con will be at Winter Fantasy. Um, Winter Fantasy is like that super secret cool thing that every gamer who loves D&D or even just board games should do because it's so laid back. You don't, it's not expensive. Um, you can do a ton of stuff at a quarter of the price that you would if you went to a larger convention. Uh, all of the movers and shakers of the D&D Adventures League world are come at some point. I know Teos will be there this year. I will be there this year. And what are you running there, Teos, or what, what are you expecting to run? Uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, what I'm running, but I know I am running uh, your uh, your epic at one point. I'm excited about that. I hear, this is unconfirmed rumor, but everybody gets a spell jammer. I, I will not confirm or deny that. <laughs> well, I'm excited especially, to get mine. Especially not confirm. <laughs> Uh, but I heard if you get a Winter Fantasy, you get a Spelljammer. Let's pass yeah. it on. Your character doesn't. You actually get one. <laughs> you, yeah. As a person, you get it. Uh, yep, yeah, so I don't exactly know what I'm running. I know I am running a bunch of things because um, there were some changes on the stuff that I was going to bring there. So, But I'm excited to play Esper Genesis. That's a really fun sci-fi uh, take on the D&D 5e rules. And there's also, under the Shadow of the Demon Lord thing, You know, I heard just recently somebody say, it's such a good system someone should like reskin it and there's actually this forest hymn and picnic mm. which is a game that an rpg that uses the rules of shadow of the demon lord uses the system uh but it's around kind of i don't know fey and forests and forest folk and so i'm gonna try that out sweet forward to that. yeah yep so lots of things other than adventures league going on there as well so if you are going to be there I always bring a recorder, so if you're going to be there, anyone, everyone, especially you, Teos, come up and say hi, and uh, if you have something to say on the air, we will. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll record it. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite cons. It's, um, it's Every year, it's either my favorite con or my second favorite, depending on, you know, what... I mean, some things that, that happen, like I might get to, you know, write an open or something like that, and then that might win out, but I love how approachable it is. You get to just mm -hmm. really hang out with people meet everybody in the industry and not just as a quick you know hi but you get to hang out with people and eat with them and see them in the lobby that's great yep, yep. it's very small and the uh, hotel across the street has a, a brew pub and there's a like an irish pub up the road so there are limited places to go so you generally run into everybody everywhere and they'll be happily uh willing to pull up a chair and, and chat with you uh, I know that the full Wizards team will not be there this year, but uh, I know Chris Lindsay will be there. I think Bill Benham is going to be there, the newly ensconced uh, Wizard employee, Bill Benham. So that that's awesome. And just yeah. you know, sit down and, and talk gaming. So the final thing is 
Hey, Teos, what have you been working on? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What have you been working on that we've been working on together that we can't talk about? Yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> to, to talk a little bit about uh, Cloud Giants Bargain. Okay. Well, yeah. So Cloud Giants Bargain was probably my most recent uh, that is announced work with Wizards of the Coast. Um, though it was some time ago. And what Cloud Giants Bargain did is it was a special event at PAX West, I think now two years ago, uh, based in the Acquisitions Incorporated universe. So if you know about Acquisitions Incorporated, it's a big live play event. And uh, Chris Perkins would run, and now it's Jeremy Crawford, would run the folks who run Penny Arcade through completely wacky adventures. And the premise of it is that they aren't just uh, a group of adventurers, they are a true company with employees and sub-employees, and it, it's basically a farcical look at a corporation in a fantasy world. And so my job was to try to bring that aspect of their play into an adventure that anybody could participate in and enjoy that, so being members of the Acquisitions Incorporated franchise. Um, and so that was really fun, and it was all around going to a cloud giant, cloud giant castle uh, to uh, explore it and figure out what was taking place. And this was the year that the Fathom events broadcast the Acquisitions Incorporated game live to theaters around the country and around the world. Yeah, right? so people went to movie theaters to see it, to see the live play game from PAX, and they got a copy of this adventure. Yep, I remember having, I went up in Buffalo, and I remember having to uh, harry the poor ticket seller <laughs> to get a copy because... I think it was a he. I think he didn't quite understand what was going on. So sure enough, we sent him back to his office, and there was a box there, and he opened the box and handed out the uh, the adventure. So that's how I got my copy. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. The event was, I think, a big experiment on a number of ways, but uh, but I think it went well. It's, it's honestly, it's one of my favorite. When I look back up, you know, sometimes you don't know your work until you look back at it later through the lens mm -hmm. of time, and it's one of the favorite things that I've written if not yeah. the favorite. I, I like what happened in it. Um, there are a lot of DM instruction call-outs that I think are very useful to DMs. Uh, I think the humor really conveys, which is always hard to do, is to write something funny and create funny situations. Yep. Um, DM David's written about it on the blog. I know you guys talked about it. Uh, there is a lot that I'm proud of with that adventure. It's been good. Oh, is that available on the DMs Guild? No, it's not. Not yet? Ah, that's it's, too bad. You, you either have a paper copy or it doesn't exist. So. Wow. I'm going to get you to sign mine, and I'm going to save it then. <laughs> Thanks. I, I will be glad to do that. It's, I am very proud of that work. But So I have been busy, though. Um, there is a big, huge project that we can't talk about. Mm -hmm. You and I have worked on. Uh, the other thing I really did the last uh, year and a bit is to write the Dungeon of Doom adventure for Dwarven Forge. And Dungeon of Doom is their Kickstarter before last, not the most recent, which is Caverns Deep. Uh, but Dungeon of Doom was a huge Kickstarter for Dwarven Forge terrain, which are these kind of building block-like pieces of terrain that you put together to make awesome rooms and caverns and outdoors. And so they, uh, I actually, in a crazy story, reached out to them and said, hey, these rooms seem like they tell a story. What if we write an adventure? And they were like, awesome. <laughs> and do began, that <laughs> we began doing that and uh and what's amazing to me is dwarven forge has a commitment to quality that's unbelievable 
I mean, just incredible. And so as we began working together, they would just want to do more and more and to make it even better. They added all this layout and they added story pieces. And the Dwarven Forge guys, they all play together. And they have this world that uh, the main creator, Stephen, has created where this world of Valoria and all of its various pieces to it. So it's very rich. You know, they've been playing in it for years. So I would often ask a question, you know, what is this thing? And I would get back paragraphs, right? <laughs> so, okay, how do I turn this into useful pieces for the DMs? Yeah. Um, so it's been fun. And, 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 and it was a great challenge, a very different challenge writing-wise, because there is so much to describe because the terrain is so rich. So if you have a room with, like, you know, re- realistically 12 interesting things, What's mm-hmm. your box text look like? <laughs> right, right, yeah. So that was, it was really, I learned a lot from that project. And it's and, massive, and it's all free. Uh, where can people get that? Uh, if you do a search for Dungeon of Doom Adventure on Google, you will find it. Uh, okay. But the, uh, the, it's on the Dwarven Forge website, um, and I think it's, uh, if you, the, the link is something along the lines of prepare to meet your doom, all separated by dashes, <laughs> but, but you will, nice. you will know when you find it cause you can download, uh, in various quality versions. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with how that came out. It's a, it's a very fun, I ran my home campaign through it as part of tomb of annihilation. Oh, sweet, sweet. And of course, the last thing is, as we've talked about, is something that you and I worked on together for several years now, almost. And um, we will be able to talk about it, I hope, very, very, very soon. And we will definitely have you back on the show when we can. Um, Until then, we will just say, hang in there for at least another three or four days. (laughs) At least, yeah. Yeah. So with those announcements, let's get on to our main topic which is writing adventures and encounters in different environments. With the recent uh, revelation that the next D&D adventure is going to be themed on a nautical scale, it brings up so many interesting topics around playing and designing adventures with that theme. So we thought we would start with... kind of a more of an overview of different adventure environments nautical being one of them but you know what are some of the joys what are some of the pitfalls um, challenges of creating adventures where characters are not just in a simple dungeon or walking across the forest Um, so did you have anything you wanted to say on that topic just in general yeah uh, so in general I, i think that it really is awesome to shake up the environments in which you play. Uh, And I think every DM probably has things they fall back upon. And they can be mundane or fantastic. So if you're always using forests, maybe it's a desert. Um, You know, maybe it's a coastal scene. So there can be a lot of things that aren't necessarily completely crazy, but you make them interesting. What is it like to fight on a beach where the waves are continually crashing? Um, A lot of times what I love about these different spaces is that they cause you to create uh, to, to conceive of and create different uh, play experiences than you normally would have so mm-hmm. like for example those crashing waves you know maybe there's a chance that on a certain initiative count waves crash every round mm-hmm. and so you just start thinking like wow but what, what would that play out like right and what would that be like or maybe the sands move as the waves retreat and everybody gets moved around the board right that can be a really fantastic thing to do yeah especially if you make movement 
an integral part of of it. So there are reasons why the monsters and the characters need to move. And then they've got this other element of being moved automatically. So they might have to fight against this current to get further out. Or they could body surf their way into shore if they needed to get to shore really quickly. You know, with an appropriate <laughs> dexterity slash surfing check, apparently. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's really it's really cool. And then on the flip side of that, there there is a tendency that some people may have to try to overcomplicate things, and sometimes it's justifiable to overcomplicate things. You know, if you are adventuring on the 666th plane of the abyss probably just being there is bad for your health and so uh, you want to be able to find a way to show that environment and the dangers of it without totally overwhelming the game and making it an impossible task for uh, characters of low level high level or any level um, to to exist within the environment um so, you know, based on that cool overview, I'm glad you brought up Desert because you and I share a love for a certain set of adventures that take place in, in the desert. Yeah. Uh, the the Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh was one of the first adventures I ever read. And, you know, the Desert of Desolation series there is a pretty flavorful, interesting, uh, dangerous place to adventure. And so just, uh, you know, just moving your typical adventure from a temperate climate into that sort of climate where, you know, being exiled from the oasis is a death sentence unless you are prepared to uh, magically or in some other way find a way to survive. And I love I love the desert, right? I mean, Dark Sun also. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Pharaoh and the Desert of Desolation. And when I would run it, I would bring in these mechanics and things like what is it like to fight in a howling storm, right? When this massive desert storm hits, um, what is it like to have the shan- sands shift under you and you're kind of on a side of a sand dune and, and being kind of moved every round by these shifting sands. Um, that really brings in an aspect of creativity. And as I started getting into Dark Sun more and more, then I would look at all those different terrains. What is it like to be on a chariot roaring through the uh, winding canyons uh, mm-hmm. as you're racing to catch up to someone in front of you, right? Like all those kinds of aspects have become super awesome. Mm-hmm. And so if we go in the complete opposite direction, so we go from desert to, to nautical, uh-huh. right? So, you know, Nautical throws in some even more interesting dynamics because unless you're super high level, you're not walking on water. So so you you have a vessel now that you must consider when you are creating your adventure and your encounters. Um, The vessel can lead to a wide variety of new and exciting options, but it also can constrict you. Because the, if the characters are low level, everything that's happening is taking place on or very close to that ship. And it can make it can make creating a variety of different encounters difficult when the ship is small and the characters all have to be within this, you know, 
15 by 30 area for every combat. Fireball. What you, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, even just using ranged opponents, you know, if you put put them up against creatures with a great missile weapon attack that never have to get close, that's deadly. Yeah. For especially for low level characters who you know have three barbarians and two rogues in the uh, in the party, and here wait you know, a hundred and twenty feet away is the wizard shooting them with you know scorching <laughs> ray or whatever. Right. Uh, it's uh, it, it can be very very challenging. Uh, what, what's your experience with with nautical adventures? Uh, I do it all the time. In fact, I'm I'm currently uh, writing something that I can't talk about in detail but with uh jeff stevens who you've worked with mm -hmm. um you guys have you know he writes on the guild all the time and so yep. i'm doing something that that goes along these lines to some extent um but i've done it a number of times in my home campaign in schult i added a huge nautical piece to the tomb of annihilation adventure um, which i may release uh before too long this year um and i i love it two ships coming together, it's full of challenges, right? What, mm -hmm. what are the movement rates of these ships? How do you handle ships moving around? How do you handle siege weapons? Exactly. Um, wave movement, you know, all kinds of... It can be really interesting and fun, but I also find that as challenging as it can be, if you pare down the mechanics to something simple and evocative, um, it can be really, really fun. Um so you put some constraints on what the siege weapons do and how they fire so that it's reasonable. You choose your starting ranges so that you create a good, proper environment so you don't have those problems of the melee characters never doing anything. Uh, mm -hmm. Give them some way to board and move from one ship to another. And when you do that, you really end up with super fun, memorable scenes. Mm -hmm. And what comes to mind for me is when I run campaigns like this, what I try to do is almost like when you're starting a campaign with new players, you start small and build up, do the same thing with a nautical campaign, you know, start with just one room on the ship. They're prisoners in the brig. So they fight within the room. Then they get out and they fight within the lower level. And then they fight on multiple levels and then they get to the surface. So even though you are in a nautical campaign, you are still showing this varied um, encounter design and you are letting the characters learn how things work from the smallest detail on out to the larger details of when they're shooting cannons at, you know, flying ships that are coming down uh, onto the ocean. Uh, and and if you if you use grid based combat, be careful not to make the ship too small. Uh, if you're using theater of the mind, you, you can get away with having a smaller ship. But you know, if you're working with a grid and your ship is too small, it really complicates the, the characters' lives, which is okay to do once in a while, but you don't want to do it every time, uh, in, in movement and in restricted you know, area combat. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love that the ship, uh, a larger ship, you know, galleon-style, has these different tiers, right? It has these different decks. Um, and even you have things like the, on the main deck, you have these elevated areas of the forecastle and so on. And you have the, the, uh, the poop deck, you have the, um, which is just great to say, uh, yes. you have the crow's nest, right? So there's a lot mm -hmm. of possibility for creative play there. The rigging. Uh, mm -hmm. And some of the monsters that I love to use are things like the swashbuckler that's in uh, Volos. 
mm-hmm. um, or the scout in the monster manual have that mobility that can apply to things like climbing as well. And then they become these rigging experts and that becomes super fun. Yeah. It's complicated, but it's great fun to, to be able to use those skills you know, in combat. So start making those, you know, dexterity acrobatics checks to quickly move from the deck to the crow's nest uh, in one round. You know, things like that. It's it, it is wonderful. Another fun thing is to is that you can have these massive beasts coming up from below, right? You can have all kinds of monster encounters when you're on a ship. And, mm-hmm. and uh, one thing that I did um, that can be fun is take a monster like a Grick or a Grell and use that to represent an individual tentacle of a kraken-like monster. Mm-hmm. So that each of your tentacles are actually a creature that are fighting against the PCs and the PCs are fighting. So as they're, they're really cutting through in that very, you know, stereotypical scene from a movie, right? They are fighting a tentacle at a time. When they fight enough of those, then the monster goes away. Right. And that can work at very low levels if you choose your, you know, what these little individual tentacles are. Then you can easily have a kraken encounter at any level of play. Oh, Nice. That is a great, yeah, wow, that's great. And so we can expand that then from nautical encounters to nautical adventures. And, you know, some of the joy of a nautical adventure is you never have to keep things in one place, right? You have, it's almost like a a miniature version of a Planescape adventure where you can just go to all these crazy places. Uh, But even at low levels, you can sail from one place to another easily, and it, spreads out the storytelling uh, capabilities that you have as a DM to to give you a, a vast array of tools at your disposal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you have the, the underwater stuff, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, depending on how you handle it and what your levels of play are, you can have, you know, momentary dips underwater in shallow areas, or you can have deep explorations and get into potions of water breathing or spells that the PCs cast, and that can be fantastic. I've done some fun where you end up with these tiered fights, right, of different elevations, and you have, you know, the PCs are scattered vertically. If you use minis, you can buy. There are all kinds of uh, uh, different things you can buy to help your miniatures be at different elevations, and that's just fascinating play, super fun. Yeah, 3D combat is is definitely challenging, even if you are... (laughs) super prepared with all the bells and whistles. So I wanted to move on then to an environment that anyone who's been playing D&D for as long as you and I have our love, which is planar (laughs) environments. Um, Because there are so many different planes. Uh, You know, the, the obvious ones are, are hell, the nine hells, uh, the abyss, um, Mechanus or Mechanus is yeah. is another is another fun one, uh, but you can do so much with them in terms of all of the environmental factors and all of the special rules that it takes to to survive and to thrive on those planes. What's your favorite plane? Oof, that's tough. Um, yeah. Tell you what, I've had a lot of fun with is when you have players that are relatively new to D and D is just popping them into the astral plane. Oh yeah, uh, where they just begin to fall until they choose a different up. Yep, yep. That's just I've had so much fun with that so many times where where they're just falling and, and they they're falling endlessly. So it's you know, one of those things right. where you can literally like shout your lungs out 
and then you kind of get your Eric back again and yeah. keep screaming or do you do something? And, and then at some <laughs> point, you know, you can even tip them in by they, they could just pass somebody who's just hanging out in the middle of the air, not falling. Or, but you right. basically choose which way is your down or that there's no down at all. And that yep. changes your gravity. And that's a fascinating environment to be in. And the plane of air can work that way uh, mm-hmm. as well, which is which is really very fun. I was super happy when the concept of the Shadowfell and the Feywild became canonical, if you will, yeah. uh, because it, it gave such a great playground for stories and encounters without having to go too far afield into planar travel. True. And, and that idea of the Shadowfell where it's this like the world but reflected darkness. That, that's right. really neat. Yep. So, uh, like the other places we've talked about, desert, nautical, uh, other planes, part of the challenge of running or writing content there is, as I said earlier, to make it interesting and challenging without making it overwhelming. And there, there's, there's a whole show or three shows or eight shows just talking about this um, because it it becomes a very hard and tricky thing to do, especially if you're writing for uh, public consumption and you don't know what the group that's going to be playing it, what capabilities they have. Um, Have you done that? What sort of challenges have you faced working in that arena? I think the biggest challenge to me is taking all the cool ideas that spring to mind and collapsing that down to a manageable set so that the DM and the players will have a fun experience that's evocative but manageable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether it's, one of the things I always try to do is, is create something that will feel like that place. So you don't, the worst thing to me is forgetting about that place. And the second thing is just overcomplication. So, like, if you're underwater, uh, if the PCs can breathe, at some point you just for, you're going to forget you're underwater unless you remind them. So, right. having something floating through the room, describing the smell, taste of a current, uh, or the the visual of the current flowing through, uh, having things that are up so people swim upwards to get them. Right, they're on the room on the top. Those mm-hmm. kinds of things can be very simple but constantly remind you that you're underwater um or uh if you're on another plane uh similarly you know what is it that makes it different so if you're in a place like mechanus where you have these grinding gears that interlock together to make these surfaces then then have that periodically show up and and deal with it um you know, maybe you're on a series of gears that are all spinning quite rapidly, right? So that can be really fun. Or maybe it's just slow, but you see it. Or there's something up in the air. Uh, if you're in a place like, is it is it Acheron that has the, like, the, it's the big battlefield full of, like, metal cubes, right? Yep, so yeah. So having some of those spinning by can just make all the difference in, in reminding everybody where they are, that they're truly in this fantastic place. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 hard, the hardest part for me, other than what you just said, is coming up with something that threatens the characters without killing the characters outright right because or going the opposite way 
a party has a third level spell that totally makes it, oh, yeah, well, we can live here forever just fine because of blank, um, you know, whatever, whatever spell you want to be. So, you know, finding a way to, to thread that needle to use up a few character resources just for survival. So you, you are more tactical players feel that when they're ignoring the environmental effects and they're no, ignoring the role-playing side, they're still feeling that in some way. Yeah. Again, without completely crushing another party that may not have the same spells or may not have the same resources. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like drowning, right? In almost every edition, drowning is sort of a rule that to play it out, you need tens of minutes. Right. And so it just doesn't work. Like, and yet it's the most obvious underwater danger is to drown, but... It's literally an on-off switch, and even then takes forever to play, play out. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't – probably that's the most referenced rule for me that is you're, you're somewhere else, and you'll, it'll just say, see Drowning Chapter 9. And you go to Drowning, and you're like, I, I don't want to do this. Right, right. No, it, it's not useful. So you've got to think of something else that's – but that's where you can think of, well, maybe it's pressure or something, or elemental plane of fire, right? You have, depending on the addition, you show up, you're dead. Right. Uh, unless you have all the protection that completely cancels out that fire damage. Um, right. So you've got to think of a way to, you know, maybe there are super hot spots and mm -hmm. normal spots or something else that, that creates that, conveys that feeling of dangerous fire and heat. So, anything else you want to add about uh, adventures or encounters in different environments? No, I think that's pretty good. Um, I don't know. Let's say, what have you? What's a, a an adventure you wrote in a challenging environment? The one that leaps to mind is one that I wrote for Living Forgotten Realms. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it was. It was a, a low-level adventure or a high-level adventure, but it was the same concept, which is a race. And the low-level characters raced across Kalimshan, and the high-level adventurers raced across the Elemental Chaos. Yes. And so there was just something weird going on every, at every encounter, and it was usually different because it's the Elemental Chaos. Um, but, you know, so they, they were on these rigs, these skiffs that were that were zooming through the elemental chaos and then things would pop up or they would have to, to go to a certain place as one leg of the race. And, and it was just, it was like we've been describing, you know, each time you get to add some little twist that gives certain characters uh, the, the chance to shine in, in this area. And then they might be at a detriment in the next area where the paladin gets to shine, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's what, that's what springs to mind right away. Well, with that, we are going to say thank you so much for listening. And I'm not going to do the whole outro that we normally do, but I would like to thank our patrons uh, who make this show possible. Um, I want to thank Chris Nizak for inviting me to come onto the show and then start to host it. Um, we do have a Patreon going, so if you can, uh, please give a little bit for $4 a month you get to see our show notes and you get access to a Slack channel where we talk to our patrons. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, Teos, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, on Twitter at alpha stream or my blog, alpha org. 
And Excellent. My adventures are on the DMs Guild. Uh, always a good place to find them. A B A D I A. Okay. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. If you want to chat with the Mad Wizard, you can go to at Menagerie Wizard or come talk with us on the Downwind D&D G Plus community, which will be there until Google rips it from our cold, dead hands. Uh, there are other shows on the Misdirected Mark Network that you should check out. Uh, lots and lots of great shows. So uh, go to misdirectedmark.com and check out other offerings. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Teos, I bet you've been waiting for this. What are we going to do now? We're going to go drown some monsters really, oh. really slow. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.